morning we looked at a recap of what we've been going through on Sunday nights of this idea that was given by God of what he was like. It wasn't that someone had come up with this. This is what God stated was his glory, that he delighted in displaying himself this way. He did display himself through other things like creation. He did do this on a grand scale, and John even hints at this as you go through uh, the prologue there that Jesus was the creator. And you see God's power in that, his glory displayed in creation, but what he wanted his people to remember was this is what he was like. That he was a God that was merciful and gracious. He was long-suffering. He was one who was abundant in goodness and truth. As John describes it, he's full of grace and truth in the, the prologue. But we have this all personified in Jesus Christ. I mean, for years and years, these people were confident in the fact this is what Jesus or what God was like, that they could call upon God in prayer for this. They could praise him on the basis of this. They could come to God and expect to receive forgiveness when they came and repented of sins. They recognized this, but there were some people that still may not have understood this. And so what God did was sent him, uh, his own son, God in human flesh to come and flesh this out. What was this like that God was this way for people to be able to see? And as you read through the book of John, which is where this uh, whole prologue describes Jesus as being a fulfillment of this, a living word, that as you go through it, there aren't people or there are people in here that accept what God is like. You have uh, individuals who come to a, what we would say a saving knowledge. They, they come to know God through his son. You have in John 3, Nicodemus, and John 4, the woman at the well. But you do have people that aren't very happy with what he's doing. You read John chapter 5, and there's much debate that goes on whether or not uh, Jesus is who he says he is and whether or not he is from before the world and this type of thing. But you have one thing that is standard as you read through the book of John is that he is going to give, we would call them miracles, things that he does, things that he did that showed his power. But the way John describes it, you find it right in the first miracle where he changes water into wine and uh, he begins to do the, these things. He has these miracles that he does and John likes calling them signs. Okay, signs point to something. Okay, when we're trying to find, uh, and I find this often as people come into the building, you know, they may come in and they start looking around. And if there's a lady, she's looking for the nursery. Uh, but oftentimes people come in and they're looking for a sign that usually said men or women on it, and they want to go and use the restroom. They look for signs that indicate, okay, this is where something is at, or this is something that's here. So with John, with all the miracles that uh, you have in here, he has seven of them. Seven is the number of God, which seems to point to the fact that John's trying to prove that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that he is actually God himself. 
And he's trying to prove this, and you have these different miracles that point to the fact that he is God. You have this miracle changing water into wine in John 2 that uh, shows that he's the creator that you find in John chapter uh, 4 as uh, you have this man who has a son that's sick and Jesus from a distance is able to heal him. In John chapter 5, uh, you go through and you have this man who's by this pool that uh, is kind of, as you read the story, unhappy in some ways that he's gotten healed. Kind of the grumpy guy who even when he does get the healing is not very happy after he's done, but the Lord chose him specifically for the confrontation that he wanted to have with religious leaders. John 6, you have this miracle of feeding the 5,000. And you think about that story in relation to the statement that we have here. Remember what caused Jesus to do this miracle. What was he moved by? He was moved by compassion that these individuals had not eaten all day, that they had no food, that they had nothing like that. And so you see the compassion of the Lord in providing for things that are daily needs and that he's willing to do that. You see that he has, as John records, the miracle of walking on water. And then you have the miracle of the man who's born blind, that the Lord can reverse something that's been the case for all of his life. But the final miracle that oftentimes people call the supreme miracle is this miracle that we're familiar with, is, we're familiar with is the raising of Lazarus from the dead. In this you see the compassion, the love, the care of God in the worst of human circumstances. And for us, I, I want us to go through this story very familiar to many of us, but for us to consider and think about this, this is a display of God's glory and he's displaying his compassion, his care, and his ability to take care of the greatest of our need and that he is able to do it. And so as we go into the story, I want us to just remind ourselves of the closeness that Jesus had with individuals while he was here on earth. Starting off John 11, verse 1, it says this, Now a certain man was sick, named Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary which anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. John doesn't really give all the details of this relationship, but it seems like this is a place that Jesus oftentimes stopped. Bethany was about a mile or two outside of Jerusalem. It was a, uh, not a far walk, so when you had all the people together for feasts in Jerusalem, Jesus didn't try and find a place there. He went to Bethany and stayed there with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and you find several stories taking place in this household. This is a family that he really, truly loved being around. And the response of individuals to him was that he had displayed much to them and they were willing to reflect that back. And so you just see in this relationship, just starting off the story, that these individuals, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, these are people that the Lord, as far as we know, were average individuals, nothing outstanding in society, but the Lord loved them. It was there often to see them. 
But what happened in this story, and we're familiar with it, is that the Lord gets a message from the sisters. Verse 3, Lord, behold, he whom thou lovest is sick. Okay, there's this term again. One you love, one you care for, one you have compassion for is sick. When Jesus heard that, he said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the what? What does it say there? The glory of God. For God's glory to be displayed. That the Son of Man might be glorified thereby. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You see the the compassion here. It's just uh, throughout the story that you see this. But you see verse 6, it kind of seems like the Lord isn't really moved with compassion. Because as you read the story, he delays. He doesn't come immediately. He doesn't answer the situation right away. Now, for us, it seems like if God is compassionate and if God really cares, that he is instant answer. He answers right away when we call and that he has to respond that way. And if he doesn't, he's not a caring and compassionate God, that he's really not concerned and he doesn't care. In this story, you find that he abodes or remains two days, verse 6, in the same place where he was. Then after that, saith he to his disciples, let us go into Judea again. And his disciples say unto him, Master, the Jews of late sought to stone thee, and goest thou thither again. And Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If any man walk in the day, he stumbleth not, because he seeth the light of the world. But if a man walk in the night, he stumbleth, because there's no light in him. These things said he. And after that he saith unto them, Our friend Lazarus sleepeth, but I go that I may wake him out of sleep. I mean, he already knows in this whole story that he waits and delays and it's going to bring about the death of his friend. And you say, well, what kind of compassion is that? What kind of care is that? That that could happen, that the Lord would allow for this. Now, of course, his disciples don't understand this. Verse 12, he said to his disciples, Lord, or his disciples saying to him, Lord, if he sleeps, he shall do well. Howbeit, Jesus spake of his death, but they thought that he was spoken, that he was taking a rest and sleep. Then Jesus unsaid unto them plainly, Lazarus is dead. They didn't quite get the subtle hint that he's resting. In verse 15, he says, I am glad for your sakes that I was not there to the intent that ye may believe. I'm going to display my glory. You're going to see the power of God, the glory of God. Even in circumstances where you think there might have been a delay in these things, you're going to see the great compassion of God. I'm doing this for your sake. In verse 16, you see Thomas, which is called Didymus. He said unto his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Now understand this, that phraseology that's there is not saying, or Thomas is not saying, let's go and we'll die with Lazarus. Okay, that's sometimes how you read that and you go, well, he's saying, okay, well, we'll go there and die too. No, what it's describing is this, is they've just discussed the fact that Jesus, if he goes back to Jerusalem, has already been threatened with death, and what he is showing is a devotion to Christ. We oftentimes put Thomas in bad light, and we call him the doubting disciple, but here you see him being devoted. 
If Jesus is going to go to Jerusalem and he's going to die there, we'll go with him if that's what it takes, but we're going to go. And so this story, the part was oftentimes misunderstood, but verse 17, you find that when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave for four days already. Now, Bethany was nine to Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off, just about a mile away. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house and said, Martha, unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But what you have is that she makes some statements here that is what John is trying to get people to believe. Verse 22, But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus saith unto her, Thy brother shall rise again. Martha saith unto him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said unto her, I am the resurrection and the life. He that believeth in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Believest thou this? I mean, that's the question that you're going to come away with in this book. Is this one able to take care of the worst of things? Death, the absence of life. And he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Do you believe this? And verse 27, she says, Yea, Lord, I believe that thou art the Christ, the Son of God. Now that's a statement. It's not saying that he's the Son of God. In this culture, she was calling him God. That's what she meant by this statement, Son of God, which should come into this world. I mean, she believes this. Here's one that you have declared, I am the resurrection and the life. And I believe this because you are the Christ, the one God called for in the Old Testament that was going to come into this world and that you are God. I believe this. Now we have to step back for a second and just consider what Jesus meant by I am the resurrection and the life. For anybody thinking as they look through this story and they find that you have one that has died, what might it cost somebody to truly bring somebody back to life and give them, not just when it says here, I am the resurrection and the life, it's really referring to the fact that I give spiritual life, I give eternal life. What would it cost Jesus to to do be able to make a statement like this well you have it in the following chapters 12 13 14 15 16 17 18 this whole trail to calvary where he's going to die and he's going to have to go through the horrors of dying so that he can be the resurrection the first fruits of them that sleep he's going to be able to do this and you say god's not compassionate well here you have god saying i'm the resurrection and you're going to be able to rise from the dead because i'm going to make it possible for you you have a god that cares 
I mean, this scene that is playing out in Mary and Martha's home is a scene that is replayed and replayed and replayed throughout human history. I mean, people say, and the, the statement is, it's hard to avoid death and taxes. In fact, it's impossible. Now, some people avoid taxes, but they don't avoid death. There's no way to avoid death, and this is something that affects every family, every home, every person. As you think about in the world that we live in, as we speak, there are individuals who are passing away and dying and going into eternity every second that we are alive. Say, does God really care? Does God care that that's the case? Does God really uh, moved by that? And what you have here is Jesus stating, I am giving you the ability to overcome something you can't overcome on your own. I am the resurrection and I am the life. I can do something for you and my compassion and care for you and what I'm going to do by me, by, in, in, in Jesus stating this, by myself being uh, lifted up on a cross, I can give you eternal life. Something you couldn't have on your own. You say, is that a compassionate God? Yes. It's a compassionate God. Mary gets it right because she's one who has sat and listened to Jesus as he's taught and spoken to his disciples and uh, she has heard this and mary has heard this uh, on different occasions and she has come to the conclusion this one is the christ the son of the living god she believes this statement that jesus is this compassionate god and able to do this find in verse 28 when she said uh, so said she went her way and called mary her sister secretly saying the master's come calleth for thee and as soon as she heard that she rose quickly and came unto him now jesus was not yet come into the town but was in that place where martha met him the jews then which were with her in the house and comforted her when they saw mary uh, that she rose up hastily and went out followed her saying she goeth unto the grave to weep there then when Mary was come where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. And then there's a statement, and it shows the compassion. God's not just merely one who has no emotions. He has emotions. Look at verse number 33. When Jesus therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her. He groaned in his spirit and was troubled. Look at this and you go, well, what does it mean by the fact that he groaned in his spirit and was troubled? It's a term that is oftentimes used when individuals are angry find it used in greek context where this is the case and so there's a groaning in his spirit that is one out of frustration and you say what is he frustrated with what would he be frustrated with he's surrounded by people who are weeping they're weeping over someone who died was this what was supposed to happen to humanity 
Think about this. Uh, here you have the God of creation who's surrounded by human beings that he had created for fellowship with him. And because of their sin, what happened? They started the process of dying. They started the process of separation from God. When they sinned, they separated themselves from God. And as a result of this, their bodies and uh, their lives deteriorated as a result of sin. Dying thou shalt die, you find in the book of Genesis. And because of humankind's sin, this is the type of thing that happens. You have sorrow. You have people crying at funerals because people die. And it goes right back to the fact that mankind went and chose their own way. This isn't what humanity was supposed to be like. This isn't the way it was supposed to be. Mankind was created to live for ever. Think about Adam and Eve in the garden. They weren't created to live 100 years or 150 years. No, they were created to live forever. And yet because of sin, you suddenly had this horrible thing enter into the history and the creation that he had made, this separation, this death. And when he sees this, he is moved. I mean, this is the idea, this anger and sorrow that's going on here. He's moved in his own spirit that this is not the way it should be and it's not the way it has to be. And you look at verse 34 and he says this, Where have ye laid him? And they said unto him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35 We, we take this statement so lightly at times. But what did Jesus do? He wept. He wasn't like a politician who, uh, when the cameras are on, cries, and then uh, when no one's watching and that, he turns off the tears. He's genuinely moved by what is going on for the people around him, what they're suffering, what they're going through, what they have faced. There's a book that I recommend to people when they go through difficult times, and the title of it is just simply this, When God Weeps. You have an instance here of God weeping over our situation, the sorrows that we have, the things that we go through. God's moved by that. And the idea that when you talk about God, as you see him listed, that he's merciful and gracious, that idea of merciful is this, that he's compassionate. It's like a mother, when, it he when a mother hears their child cry, that they're moved to do something for them. Not just move, move to take care of that. So our God in heaven, when it comes to our sorrows and our difficulties, is moved in his own soul to do something about it. 
In the case of Christ, he's willing to do something about it on the grandest scale to put himself on a cross to allow his life to be given up to be able to give us life. That we can enjoy life eternally. And I think about this when we talk to individuals who know Christ, or know Christ as Savior and they have relatives that pass away that know Christ as Savior. Uh, we, we look forward to that great eternal day where there is no sorrow anymore. Where God has done something to wipe away the tears in our eyes. You go, what does He do? He takes care of the sorrow that we have because He gives us life and hope. He gives us a resurrection so that our body that broke down can be with us in glory to enjoy the presence of God fully and enjoy all of those joys. He did what He needed to do to meet our needs. But you do see here in verse 35... That when you cry to him, he is moved. This statement that God gave us in Exodus was a statement that, as we said, is not limited to a certain select group of people. That God is moved, moved by all people's situation. But he is specifically moved to those that, what, love him. Those that keep his commandments, as you find in Joel chapter 2, these individuals that are like that, that come believing that God is like this, that he has moved towards them. But understand that as you cry, as you weep, as you sorrow at loss, whatever it may be, that there is a God in heaven that cried, that wept, and was with us in our misery. In verse 36, you see this statement of the Jews. They make this, they say, behold, see, pay attention to this, how he loved him. How he loved this individual, and how he's moved by him. Now, you do have people here questioning whether or not God is able to take care of things. Look at verse 37. Some of them said, Could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused that even this man should not have died? God delayed, and so somehow God doesn't care, and that's not the case. Verse 38, Jesus therefore again groaning in himself, cometh to the grave. It was a cave, stone lay upon it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him that was dead, saith unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh, for he hath been dead four days. Jesus said unto her, Said I not unto thee, that if thou wouldest believe, thou shouldest see the glory of God? Do you believe that I can still show my glory in a situation like this? So let me do the work that I need to do. Verse 41, they that took away the stone from the place where the dead was laid and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank thee that thou hast heardest me and I knew that thou hearest me always. But because of the people which stand by, I said it, that they may believe that thou hast sent me. And then he, when he thus had spoken, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. He that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, 
His face was bound about with a napkin, and Jesus saith unto him, Loose him, and let him go. Then many of the Jews which came to Mary and had seen the things which Jesus did believed on him. Sadly, though, verse number 46, but some of them went their ways to the Pharisees and told them what things Jesus had done. Here you have people who experience the glory of God and his compassion on display and him meeting needs and they're rejoicing over this and there are still some when God does wonderful things for them and shows his compassion to a group of individuals, they still are unhappy. They still are not thankful. They don't want what God is offering, which is sad. And so for us as we just simply went through a passage like this, it's really what we need to kind of go through and remind ourselves of is that the one that we see doing the miracles uh, in the Gospels, the one who goes and reaches out and does the unthinkable, touching someone who has leprosy. One who comes at another occasion and comes and finds a woman who has got her only son who is lying there on this grave, uh, the, 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 it's not the hearse, but the coffin uh, type structure that they would have there being carried out of the town, is willing to stop the whole ceremony and give her son back to her. You see in the story of Jarius and his only daughter, the compassion of Christ. And you just can go through the pages of your gospel and see that there is a God in heaven that cares. Not that he's far and distant, not that he's uh, one who's uh, aloof from your concerns and your cares. No, he's moved by these things. And he is doing things to try and help you, not hurt you. And it may, as you even see in the story in John chapter 11, it may seem like that he's forgotten and ignored you, and it may be just a delay where he can display his glory even more magnificently. Who he is, what he's like, what he's capable of doing in his goodness and his gracious giving. So I challenge you maybe this week uh, to sit down and read through a gospel and just see Jesus displayed and go through and say, am I seeing these characteristics? That God's compassionate, that he's merciful, he's long-suffering. I think about the Pharisees. I was thinking about this this afternoon. I was thinking about the Pharisees, and you have these individuals in the Sanhedrin, and they were always against Jesus. And you just think, why didn't Jesus strike a blow to the whole organization while he was here? And you think about it, just a few years later, after Jesus is risen from the dead, there's one who's a part of this group by the name of Paul. God had been long-suffering with individuals that were cantankerous to God. In fact, God, as Paul gives his testimony, uh, he was causing individuals to blaspheme. He was injurious. He was that type of man, and he thought in his mind he was doing God's service. but he admits the fact that God was merciful to him. 
He was undeserving. He was one who stood up against God. But God in his, well, his glory, his character was long-suffering and offered to this man, Paul. We know him, well, initially as Saul, but Paul graciously gave him something that he did not deserve. And Paul was a testimony to the amazing grace of God, and you can go throughout church history where God's glory in being, well, compassionate to sinners and the worst of sinners, you can see time and time again. But I challenge you maybe even this week just to go through and read through one of your Gospels. Say that'll take a little bit of time. But yeah, go through and just say, am I seeing the compassion, the grace, the care of God in Jesus Christ because He is God, but being displayed that this is what my God is like. This is what He is. He's moved with compassion to me as an individual. And he's moved, and he's been moved, and he would continue to be moved. You say, why? Because this is his character. It never changes. And he will continue to be moved. So read it. See it. Memorize this statement and go, my God's like this. I've seen it in Christ. I know this by the words of the Scripture. This is my kind, compassionate God who displays his glory day in and day out to me, a sinner, undeserving of his least of mercies. Lord, we thank you. Thank you for the four Gospels that we have to consider from many different angles. Jesus, who is revealing your glory and what you're like. Because he was God. May we rejoice to to be able to say that we know you, the one true God. Jesus has made this possible by the sacrifice of himself, the compassionate sacrifice of himself for us. So may we never get to the point where we think we're too far from your goodness, your grace, your mercy. And when we're in need, may we call to you on the basis of what we know you to be like and just have dependence and trust on that. Lord, we love you. Thank you for first loving us, undeserving sinners. And we praise you in the name of your Son, the Son of God who died for us. And in his name we pray. Amen.